so Mike introduced this chapter to us last week, and as he mentioned, this is a really pivotal, crucial moment in Jesus' ministry. It's a climax in the story. It's not necessarily the ultimate climax. We get that later on. Uh, but it's still, it's very climactic in the sense that there's been a lot of expectation, a lot of suspense and tension leading up to Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem. So Mike covered last week up to verse 17, and that includes the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, riding on the, the donkey, followed by his rampage through the temple, overturning tables, rebuking the merchants and money changers. And then finally, we see the children and the outcasts, the blind, the lame being healed and recognizing Jesus as the Messiah, while in the meantime, the chief priests and uh, scribes were indignant and offended at Jesus and that they would be worshiping him that way. In the next little section of verses, beginning in verse 18, we're going to find Jesus having a rather strange encounter with a fig tree. So we're going to talk about that, that fig tree today, but first, I really think it's important to understand this fig tree narrative um, and understand that it's told in the context of these other preceding events in Matthew. So I'm going to kind of overlap and, and review some of what Mike covered from just to, and kind of bring out a couple different perspectives. Uh, again, Mike brought this up, but just bear in mind, again, that these events that are described the way they are in Matthew, they're grouped together because they relate to each other thematically. And when viewed in context with each other, they really help to explain each other. The exact chronology of events is a little fuzzy because the exact chronology is not really what's important. That's not really the point. In fact, if you compare all four Gospels, which we're going to do in a moment, none of them really lay out these events in the same order or in the same way. So in Matthew chapter 21, we have first the triumphal entry, Jesus riding in on the donkey, the palm, palm leaves on the, the road, followed by the cleansing of the temple, turning over tables, and then we have the barren fig tree is cursed and it withers immediately all at once. And then after that, we're not going to cover this today, but after that, Jesus' authority is challenged. We'll probably look at that next week. Then if you look at Mark, which you can find in chapter 11, the beginning of chapter 11 of Mark, he has the triumphal entry, very similar uh, details there. Then we have a lament over Jerusalem, which we're going to actually look at. Um, oh, sorry, no. I skipped ahead. Then we have the barren fig tree cursed. So he, Jesus uh, curses the fig tree. And then he goes to the temple and does his thing there, cleanses the temple. Then the next morning, they find the fig tree withered. Um, and then again, Jesus' authority is challenged. So it's very similar, but it's a little bit more broken up in, in detail. Then we have Luke, again, beginning um, in chapter 19, verse 28, begins with the triumphal entry. Again, very similar details. Then we have this lament over Jerusalem. Jesus is sad, and he kind of pronounces this, this lament over the city. Then we have the cleansing of the temple, and then again we have Jesus' authority challenged. Notice he doesn't even bring up the fig tree. And then we have John, who <laughs> really, he throws chronology totally out the window in, in his gospel account. He does kind of his own thing with it. John groups together narratives and teachings in order to reveal the rich theological truths, the underlying truths, um, and he kind of does the work of patching together everything into a deeply meaningful account 
of the gospel. John was an eyewitness to the Christ, and he tells us his eyewitness account, not as a chronological linear story, but by trying to just reveal who the raw truth of Christ is. He's the fulfillment of the Old Testament Messiah. He's the priest of a new covenant, the prophet and king of a new creation. So when you look at the, when you start off in John, the first chapter is this dense, um, just theological introduction to the concept of who is Christ, who is the Messiah. And then he connects that concept of Messiah to the person of Jesus as validated through the prophet John the Baptist. He does all that in chapter one. Then chapter two jumps right into the narrative of Jesus beginning his ministry. Does everyone remember what his first public miracle that is recorded? Water to wine at the, the, the wedding in Cana. So John tells that story, kind of kicking off his, his ministry, saying, okay, Jesus started. And then the next story that, Jesus, that, that John tells after introducing Jesus' ministry comes in verse 13 of John chapter 2. And it's the story of Jesus turning over tables in the temple. So I'm going to read this because John just approaches it a little bit differently. The Jewish Passover was near, and so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found people selling oxen, sheep, and doves, and he also found the money changers sitting there. After making a whip out of cords, he drove everyone out of the temple with their sheep and oxen. He also poured out the money changers' coins and overturned the tables. He told those who were selling doves, Get these things out of here! Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace! His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews replied to him, What sign will you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered, Destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. Therefore the Jews said, This temple took 46 years to build and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So chronologically, we know that these events, the, the temple cleansing, that this took place later in Jesus' ministry uh, leading up to his death and resurrection. But John wants his readers to recognize the significance of this right up front, uh, kind of ahead of time. To me, it seems almost like an intentional spoiler. It's a heads up as to who Jesus is and his intentions to try to better understand everything else that we end up reading about Jesus later on in John's gospel account. But you'll also notice that John throws one other detail in here, a quote that we will see in Matthew, but not yet until another couple chapters later on. But it connects, John connects Jesus' confrontation with uh, the temple to this statement that Jesus says when the Jews demand a sign for his authority. He says, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. And John, the narrator, steps in and, and goes on to explain, you know, he, he, was at, he wasn't talking about that physical building. He was the Jews' beloved temple in Jerusalem. He was referring to his own body, which they, they would then brutally destroy, but then which would be raised again in glory. So by telling this story right off the bat in chapter 2, John is kind of dismantling for his readers Right off the bat, the, the long-held, preconceived notions of who the Messiah would be and what he would do. And even the significance and, and the role of the temple in Jerusalem, uh, before even getting further into 
uh, describing his ministry and, and more of the narrative. So it's just, it's a different strategy, a different approach that John takes to explaining who Jesus is. And I think that's just a great example of when we view all four of the, the gospel uh, writers together, they give us this beautiful, multifaceted, multidimensional mosaic to explore, and by which we can continually get to know and appreciate Jesus more. So while John kind of gives us this, this shocking spoiler right off, you know, right in chapter 2, when we look at the slightly more chronological accounts in, in Matthew and Mark, uh, we realize that the disciples kind of came to grasp this much more gradually. This was a gradual realization that they came to that we've been kind of tracking through Matthew. And I don't think they even fully grasp it until after the resurrection. When Jesus first arrives in Jerusalem, he's riding on a donkey like the kings of old. We talked about last week. He was met with palm leaves and praise. I can imagine that those, those 12 of his closest disciples, when they saw this grand welcome, if I were one of them, I would be elated. Uh, they're surrounded by this whole crowd of Jesus followers. They're proclaiming him in no uncertain terms as their king in Jerusalem. This is coming after a long, weary journey. I'm sure they're pretty tired. And Jesus has been making these statements about his death and his resurrection. And they're kind of confused and alarmed. They're probably not sure how they were going to be received. I mean, the, the priests and the Pharisees are out to get Jesus. They know this. And here they're arriving at the hot spot, the center of Jewish authority. And you've got to give him credit for still following him, even though he keeps saying how he's going to be uh, mocked and tortured and killed, and uh, they're still with him, but if, if I were them, I'd be a little bit confused and not and unsure as to what's going to take place. But from their perspective, from any Jewish perspective, if a king is going to be established over Israel, a new king, if a new kingdom is going to be established, then Jerusalem is where that king would take the throne. And if God is going to restore his, his presence with his people on earth in its full glory like in the old days, the temple in Jerusalem would be the epicenter of his glory. At least that's what most of the Jews would have assumed based on the prophecies of the Messiah and, and their history. And here Jesus is fulfilling prophecies by riding in on a donkey, uh, which is just described in Zechariah, which Mike read last week. The Jews are, are hailing the arrival of the long-awaited king. It might cover a bunch of the Old Testament prophecies connecting to this idea of Jesus as king, which shows that the Jews recognizing him as king, that, was, that wasn't necessarily misplaced. They were right to do so. They were right to recognize Jesus as king. It was just a bit misunderstood as to what that meant. For them. So I do want to spend even a little more time on this idea of Jesus as king. Now last week, one of the questions that Mike left you with was, who do you believe Jesus is? That's one of the most crucial questions anyone can answer in their lives. I have a, another question that I want to look at and kind of think of from the perspective of, of people proclaiming him as king at the time. Who is the king? The Jews wanted Jesus to be their king, the ones who wanted him to be their king. They believed him to be qualified by his lineage, declared him as the son of David. He's a descendant of the great king David, 
to whom God promised his throne would reign forever. And now that's an accurate credential. He did, he did come from the line of David. Though I would argue that's not really his most important credential because there were many kings in the line of David. There were a few decent ones, mostly terrible, um, and none of them were ultimately able to deliver on the promise of the Messiah. So if Israel is looking for the ultimate king, who is that king? So I want to look for a moment back a little bit further into Israel's history of kings. Who was Israel's first king? Anyone? Saul? All right. That was just kind of a trick question, all right, because I'm going to go back to Exodus chapter 15. You can turn there if you'd like. Exodus chapter 15 comes right after God has delivers Israel, delivered Israel from Egypt. He's brought them through the parted waters of the sea. He's destroyed Pharaoh's army, and the people sing a song of praise and worship to Yahweh. So I'm not going to read the whole chapter. Um, the chapter is basically the whole song, this poem, um, but I want to draw your attention to the very last line, the last verse of this song in, in verse 18. The people say this, Exodus 15, 18, Yahweh shall reign forever and ever. That day, Israel declared Yahweh to be their God and their king. Their king had defeated the king of Egypt and so shown himself more powerful than any other king they had ever seen before. And later in Exodus, Yahweh would declare Israel to be a nation of priests, to represent him, to, be, to bear his name to the rest of the world, not just to bring his blessing to themselves, but to all the nations, fulfilling Yahweh's promise to Abraham. And then the whole world would know the blessing of having Yahweh as their God and king. So from the beginning, the true king of Israel was to be Yahweh himself, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the God of gods. And Israel was set apart initially in this way. And of course, God did appoint leaders, prophets, and judges, and authorities to help keep the peace in an organized, civilized society. But their only ultimate authority, their only true king originally was Yahweh himself. But eventually, Israel demanded a king, a human king. So they, they wanted to be like everyone else, their neighbors, their friends, their enemies. We see this fateful turn uh, happen in 1 Samuel 12, uh, starting in verse 8. I'm going to read. When Jacob went into Egypt and your fathers, this is Samuel speaking, when Jacob went into Egypt and your fathers cried out to Yahweh, then Yahweh sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and settled them in this place. But they forgot Yahweh, their God, so he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. And they cried out to Yahweh and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken Yahweh and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us from the hands of our enemies, and we will serve you. Then Yahweh sent Jerubal and Bidan and Jephthah and Samuel, and he delivered you from the hands of your enemies all around so that you lived in security. But you saw that Nahash, the king of the sons of Ammon, came against you, and you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us, although... Yahweh your God was your king. 
So now behold, the king whom you have chosen, whom you have asked for, and behold, Yahweh has set a king over you. And that was, of course, Saul. You're, you're right. Um, but I wanted to point out that even Samuel is saying, you don't need a, a, a human king. Yahweh was your king. But God granted them their demand for a king. And he did allow many blessings. He used those kings, especially the first couple, David and uh, Solomon, brought Israel to, to great prosperity. So he, he allowed blessings to come to Israel through their kings, but ultimately their sinfulness, their corruption, their pride, and even their just dysfunctional families uh, led, them, led the whole nation to their ruin. But they did, again, have a few kings who represented God well, led Israel well overall, at least for some part of their reign. There were a few, and the foremost being King David, who despite having some fatal sinful flaws, especially towards the end of his reign, Yahweh still referred to David as a man after his own heart. I want to look at some of the ways that David, the great King David, spoke of Yahweh in his Psalms. First being Psalm 9, verses 7 and 8, he says, But Yahweh abides forever. He has established his throne for judgment, and he will judge the world in righteousness. He will render justice for the peoples with equity. In Psalm 103, 19, Yahweh has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Psalm 29, 10, and 11, Yahweh sat enthroned over the flood. Indeed, Yahweh sits as king forever. Yahweh will give strength to his people Yahweh will bless his people with peace. Psalm 145, 11 through 13 says, They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your might to make known to the sons of men his mighty deeds and the glory of the majesty of his kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures from generation to every generation. So you see, even, even the great King David recognized Yahweh is the great king, the ultimate king, and he recognized Jerusalem as ultimately belonging to God. You can find many more confessions throughout the Psalms of, of Yahweh's ultimate kingship and authority. And again, David wasn't perfect. He wasn't without pride. But when he did sin, when he was at his lowest, he eventually did humble himself before God. He repented and he accepted the consequences of his actions. Whereas so many other kings after him grew so full of pride that they abandoned Yahweh altogether. They failed to recognize the sovereignty of God. And then they in turn led the rest of Israel to do the same, worshiping idols instead of the true God. And that ultimately resulted in their ruin and their exile. They eventually did return from exile. They were allowed to rebuild their temple after it was destroyed. And they were there ever since, for generations and upon generations uh, leading up to uh, Jesus. Uh, but this whole time, for hundreds of years, they were ruled by foreign kings, from Babylon to Rome, the Roman emperor. And all this time, the Jews have been looking for the return of a human king to restore their kingdom and their national sovereignty. In hindsight, we can see that the only perfect king that they ever had was Yahweh himself, going all the way back to Exodus. So when we see the arrival of Jesus here in the person of 
Christ. We see God providing what they wanted and what they needed in one package. Because Jesus is the manifestation of, of Yahweh. He is, he is God incarnate, but he is also a human in their midst, one of them. It's a profound thing. They didn't deserve it, <laughs> but they needed it, and God gave it to them. And at first, he's well-received when he gets to Jerusalem. But Jesus knows their somewhat shallow and, and misplaced expectations, and he knows how quickly things are about to take a turn once his true intentions are revealed. So when we get to the cleansing of the temple narrative, we really kind of, that's a, really an illustration of what Jesus was and wasn't there to do. He wasn't there to celebrate Jewish nationalism by coming to the capital and saying, you know, we're going to overthrow our oppressors. Um, he wasn't bringing glory and praise to their religious uh, leaders at the temple. He does quite the opposite. He expresses outrage when he gets to the temple. And every gospel account that we have, it's a rather shocking description of what Jesus does in the temple. Luke is perhaps the most vague. Um, it just says he, he drove out those who were selling. Um, but we know from the details given in, you compare all four, he, he drove them out, not just by saying, hey, would you please leave? No. He overturned tables, he overturned chairs, he poured out bags of coins, and then John says that he even made a whip out of cords or out of rope with which to drive them out. Get out of here! I mean, this, he made a scene. This is Jesus, this peaceful guy. He's all about love and compassion and, and mercy, humility. But he's anything but quiet when it comes to the scene. He makes a scene. Now, he's not violent. He's not overthrowing authorities. He's not actually hurting anyone other than their egos, probably. But he's drawing attention with these actions. He was clearly visibly upset with what he found. And another thing to note, he didn't just throw a fit and then leave, right? If you look at, you compare the different gospel accounts, they say that after he did all this, after he cleared out the, the money changers, the merchants, the dove sellers, he stayed in the temple and began to teach. He cleared it out so that he would have a place to teach. So he was rebuking them, but it was the beginning of corrective teaching. The scene that he caused here, it was to make a point. And this, I think, is just a great example of seeing Jesus in his prophet role. We say Jesus came as a, a prophet, a king, and priest, right? So three, at least three of the roles that he came to fulfill, and he's, he's really putting on his prophet hat here. This is Jesus at his most prophety, I think. Um, God spoke often through prophets by having them, I know it's not a word, but he's, he's pretty prophety here. God often spoke through prophets throughout the Old Testament by having them make a scene and they, having them do and say shocking things in order to, to get a point across. Now, Isaiah, he's probably one of the most highly esteemed and, and most influential of the prophets. He walked around Jerusalem naked and barefoot for three years, as commanded by God. 
He told him to do this, and it was just to make a point. I think it's important when considering this, what may seem like an outburst by Jesus, that it wasn't just an outburst of blind fury. It was a pointed, prophetic call to repentance. He was identifying specific corruptions that needed to be addressed. It was a call for attention in order to uh, call attention to the rebuke and the teachings that would then follow. I think often when we read this passage, do you think Jesus kind of comes across as angry here, spiteful even? That can be sometimes how how we read it. Was Jesus angry? I think we can characterize the emotion that's expressed here. There's, there is an anger here. He's upset. He's distraught, even horrified. He's passionate. There's passion here. But it's important to consider the motives behind these feelings, behind the anger. We know from the Old Testament that God does get angry. He has the capability for anger, but that is not his primary characteristic. It's possible to anger God, when you push him far enough, but that's not his default state. When he reveals himself to Moses on Mount Sinai, the first way that he actually describes himself to a human is to Moses in Exodus 34, chapter 6. It says, Yahweh passed over before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, God who is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding with loyal love and faithfulness. Because Jesus is the perfect image of God, we can describe Jesus the same way. The primary emotion or the primary motivating factor behind any of Jesus' actions at any given time was and is always love, compassion. Jesus loves his people so deeply that when he sees them failing to experience the presence of God and his blessings, especially in the one place they ought to have been in the temple, breaks his heart. It upsets him. It angers him that people have been led so astray away from the Father towards greed and corruption instead of the blessings that he wants for them. You see the difference? It's not just blind fury. It's angry, passionate love. It's jealous love. It's love for his people. When I say his people, for Jesus, it's not just the Jews. He was a Jew, and he, would have, um, he loved the Jews, but it's for all humans. He was a human, and he has compassion for all of his fellow humans, the whole world. So all that said, I think we have to have all of that in our mind, because I think that's the point that's really illustrated when we finally come to this infamous fig tree. Now, has anyone else read the story of this fig tree, Jesus cursing the fig tree, and just thought, like, kind of a weird story, huh? Anyone? Yeah, me too. It just kind of seems weird and uncharacteristic of Jesus, doesn't it? Even more so than, than cleansing of the temple. Because the temple, like, you, there's a clear, you know, they're sinning, they're not supposed to be there. It, this fig tree didn't hurt anybody. We're going to see later, it wasn't even in season to be f- bearing fruit, and he curses it. What is it? The t- so, while neither Luke nor John mentioned the fig tree. Both Matthew and Mark do tell the story, and both connect it with the triumphal entry, the cleansing of the temple, 
and then followed up by, you know, questioning Jesus' authority. So regardless of the exact order of events, whether or not the tree withered immediately or overnight, it's not really the point. And yes, it may come across as somewhat confusing, uh, even alarming to, to some readers. It really holds iconic significance that really uh, it punctuates the relationship between Israel and the Messiah, especially for anyone at the time who witnessed it who would have been steeped in the prophets of the Old Testament. I think when we, when we look at it in light of, of certain Old Testament passages, then suddenly it becomes pretty clear what Jesus was doing here. So I want to read first uh, Matthew's description in chapter 21, verse 18. It says, Early in the morning, as he was returning to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he went up to it and found nothing on it except leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. At once, the fig tree withered. When the disciples saw it, they were amazed and said, How did the fig tree wither so quickly? Jesus answered them, Truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you tell this mountain, Be lifted up and thrown into the sea, it will be done. And if you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Mark, in chapter 11, his account is very similar, it's just not quite as condensed. And most scholars expect this is probably the more precise order of events. So you have first in Mark eleven twelve it says, The next day they went out from Bethany, he was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree with leaves, he went to find out if there was anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Then you have the cleansing of the temple narrative, and then you get to the next morning in verse 20. Early in the morning, as they were passing by, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Then Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Jesus replied to them, Have faith in God. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, Be lifted up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, everything you pray and ask for, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. So, yeah, another thing we learned from Mark is that it wasn't even the right season for this tree to be bearing fruit. So why does it seem like Jesus gets upset with this tree, cursing it to death? Seems a little unreasonable, doesn't it? Well, Jesus, of course, would be well aware that figs weren't in season. I don't think... Jesus was lashing out at this tree like a child, upset that he didn't get what he wanted just because he was hangry and he needed food. Now, I think Jesus came upon this tree and recognized an opportunity for a demonstration, for teaching, communicating. He so brilliantly did. You see Jesus just taking these opportunities all throughout Matthew to, as a teaching moment. So he uses the tree as a metaphor for Israel. The best part about this, too, is he didn't just pull this metaphor out of thin air. It was a perfect metaphor for him to use because it should have been very familiar to his disciples and to anyone familiar with Hebrew scriptures. Throughout the the Old Testament, particularly in the prophets, Israel is very frequently uh, compared to a fig tree or a grapevine because both of those were just extremely uh, common crops to have in that region of the world. So Jesus here is drawing on a rich, deep 
precedent thousands of years old when he pulls out this metaphor. So here's just a, a few examples. We have in Isaiah chapter 34, God is pronouncing judgment against here the nations in general, not just Israel. But he says, all the hosts of heaven will rot away. The sky will be rolled up like a scroll. All their hosts will also wither away as a leaf withers from the vine or as one withers from the fig tree. So in that context, the implication Jesus is making is that Israel is no better off than the rest of the other sinful nations and that they will face Yahweh's judgment for their sin. And then in Jeremiah, we see very similar language, but this time this is directed specifically towards the people of Israel in Jeremiah 8. I will surely gather them up, declares Yahweh. There will be no grapes on the vine and no figs on the fig tree, and the leaf will wither, and what I have given them will pass away. Later in Jeremiah, chapter 24, the prophet has a vision of figs in which Yahweh compares the righteous to good figs and the corrupt to rotten figs. And as he's going through interpreting it in verse 5, says this, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, like these good figs, so I will recognize as good the exiles of Judah who I have sent out of this place into the land of the Chaldeans. For I will set my eyes on them for good and I will return them to this land and I will build them up and not pull them down. I will plant them and not uproot them. I will give them a heart to know me, for I am Yahweh. They will be my people. I will be their God, for they will return to me with their whole heart. But like the rotten figs, which cannot be eaten due to rottenness, indeed, thus says Yahweh, so I will give over Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his officials and the remnant of Jerusalem who remain in this land and the ones who inhabit the land of Egypt. So again, comparing this passage to Jesus condemning the fig tree, the implication is that Israel has become so corrupt that it no longer produced any good fruit at all. Here's a couple more short ones, just to drive home my point. Hosea 2.12, I will devastate her, her vines and fig trees. She thinks that these are her wages that her lovers have given her. I will turn them into a thicket and the wild animals will eat them. Joel 1, 6 and 7. For a nation has invaded my land, powerful and without number. Its teeth are the teeth of a lion, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has devastated my grapevine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off its bark and thrown it away. Its branches have turned white. Oh, I went too far, sorry. So you see the story of the, the fig tree in Matthew and in Mark. It's, it's not just coming out of nowhere. It kind of seems random, but it's a direct hyperlink back to those passages of condemnation over Israel and for, over other nations for not following Yahweh. So this imagery, this metaphor really makes sense in light of Old Testament scripture. Jesus is illustrating Israel's moral barrenness and foreshadowing the coming judgment against Jerusalem and against the temple. It's going to be destroyed but I want to emphasize again this episode of Jesus cursing the tree. It's still, it wasn't done out of spite or out of anger. I'm sure there was a mix of frustrating emotions. He was, you know, he was human, he was hungry, um, but that doesn't mean that he was doing this out of you know, spite. I think we can, again, glean his, his primary sentiment towards Jerusalem was not anger, as we see from Luke, who records 
Jesus' lament over Jerusalem as he approached. So Luke says this, chapter 19, verse 41, as he approached and saw the city, he wept for it, saying, if you knew this day what would bring peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. For the days will come on you when your enemies will build a barricade around you, surround you, and hem you in on every side. They will crush you and your children among you to the ground, and they will not leave one stone on another in your midst, because you did not recognize the time when God visited you. So I would say based on this this passage, we can say pretty confidently that Jesus' primary sentiment towards Jerusalem and in general, was sorrow, lament. His heart was broken. He was grieving. Because again, the, the motive behind any and all of Jesus' feelings, actions, words, it was always, first and foremost, out of his love for humanity. Out of his love, he was deeply sad. Out of his love, he was passionately angry. Out of his love, he was deeply hurt. And out of his love, he was preparing to do the one thing that could save them, from themselves, giving himself to them so that they could finally see him for who he truly is. And I don't want to leave this passage now without addressing verses 20 and 22. We're not going to spend much time on this, um, but I'm not sure if the disciples really caught the underlying meaning of this event with the fig tree or not that we just looked at. I'm not sure if they really caught those hyperlinks they seem more caught up and interested in the miracle itself. I'm sure later on, going back they, and thinking about it, they realized what it meant, and that's why Matthew and Mark included it. But in that moment, they're just like, whoa! They're, you know, they're not so interested in the purpose and the message. Because they're not like, whoa, you're calling out all of Jerusalem and Israel like the prophets did, using this illustration of a fig tree. Wow, that's cool. Or even just asking, oh, hey, what, what does that mean, Jesus? Why, you know, why did you do that? They're just like, whoa, how did you do that? It's a magic trick. How'd you do it? They're just in awe of Jesus' ability to cause a fig tree to wither. And I guess it's easy for me to say because I wasn't there, but I, I have to laugh because haven't they seen him do enough by now? More miraculous things. He's healing people walking on water. He's calmed the storms. He's shown his power over nature throughout this, this ministry. So to me, it's just odd that they would fixate on that, but... Um, nevertheless, you know, Jesus is, is patient as always, and he responds just kind of with a gentle reminder of something he's previously already said in Matthew. Remember in chapter 17, he said something very similar. He said in 1720, because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have the faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible to you. It's almost the same imagery, but here he takes that example even a step further he doesn't just say that with enough faith through prayer you can move a mountain essentially he's saying that if you have faith you can tell a mountain to go jump in a lake and it'll do it and again he's using kind of hyperbolic imagery to to illustrate his point and i think jesus is implying here in this response the disciples really ought not to be so surprised by the power of prayer or of jesus authority over creation at this point in his ministry after everything they've seen so far. Now, maybe they understood the point he was making, maybe not. Uh, We're not really told. Uh, But for us, the reader, at this point, the the connections are pretty obvious, and the message is clear. 
On one hand, there's the immediate implication of the, the fig tree withering, the linking of that symbolic miracle of, of judgment with the cleansing of the temple, implying God's imminent punishment of Israel by the, the destruction of the city and the temple that would come uh, in just a few years after. But we also know that Jesus was preparing to be himself the fruit of redemption, the water of life that would allow life to spring forth among the barren nations and thus be spared judgment. He, the true high priest, the true king, was preparing to give himself over to the authorities so that ultimately the whole world would be spared from withering away. So that even the very people who killed him could be offered forgiveness as he prayed in his final moments, forgive them. I think for us there may be times when we feel more like a withered fig tree. Like there's not much fruit in our lives. Like morally, spiritually, we may feel barren. And the good news is all we need to do is, is ask and God has promised to fill us with his spirit to make us fruitful as long as we are faithful to trust him, to surrender to him so that he can care for us, tend to us so that we, you know, he can... He can take care of us much better than we can on our own. And if we allow him to, then we will, he will turn us into thriving bearers of his image, participating in the true love uh, in relationships with him and those around us. On the other hand, there may be times when we're feeling pretty fruity. Like we're doing pretty good. We have quite a few accomplishments, lots of good things we've done and are doing in our lives. We're thriving spiritually. We're in a close relationship with God and we're having a noticeably positive effect on other people around us, even helping them bear more fruit. And that's great. That's a fantastic place to be. There's nothing wrong with that. But that's also a perfect time to do some honest inspection of your own branches, of, of every aspect of your life, and humbly ask God to show you where there might be hiding some rotten fruit, some dead branches that need to be pruned out. Anything that might need to be cut out or otherwise adjusted, because in this life we will never be completely perfect. There's always a guarantee of finding some room for improvement somewhere. And most of us probably on any given day find ourselves somewhere in the middle of being, you know, maybe not totally withered, but knowing we could probably be bearing more fruit. And the good news is that no matter where we are in our walk with Jesus, as long as we put our faith in him and seek to follow him, his loving sacrifice has paid for our sins completely. And though we should be striving to become ever more like Jesus and, you know, bearing more fruit and constantly refining things in our lives, ultimately we can rest assured that nothing, nothing is beyond redemption and that nothing we can do can ever separate us from the love of Christ because of his ultimate sacrifice. And we're going to, as we compare to contemplate the sacrifice through communion, that he would give his body and his blood to save his enemies from themselves. Let's approach this time with some, some gratitude and humility. Think about how Jesus placed himself in our stead. He took our place, took upon himself the burden of all humanity's sin. So that even the most sinful and 
dreadful, fruitless, withered of us can find abundant life everlasting in him. Lord, as we approach the communion table, I just pray that you would uh, search us. And we know that you know everything there is about us, but you know us even better than we know ourselves, so much better. And we pray that you would convict us, that you would show us any, any uh, area of our lives that you are not happy with. Lord, as we uh, just give thanks to you, may your spirit fill us and uplift us, and may you be glorified by this time we spend in remembrance of your sacrifice. In Jesus' name, amen.